Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. My name is Barbara Smith. I am a Black feminist, lesbian, socialist, writer, and organizer since the 1960s. My name is Meg Only, and I'm an independent curator. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. It's really hard to be a young artist because how do you get shown? Whereas the material circumstances of creating a book or a chapbook or self-publishing something or a zine is accessible. People who had uh, in the past not had any access to creating culture through words took the reins, you know, and were able to start presses just as I had been involved in as well and to get the work out. And I think one of the real challenges I find just as a curator in general is how do you organize groups of people and allow them to have individual points of view and not become a monolith, which is inherently one of the great challenges, I think, not just within our, our exhibition uh, practices, but in general as people. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey, everybody. It's Helen here. I'm really excited to introduce this season's final episode, which brings together two intellectuals who are particularly important to me, the legendary Black feminist scholar Barbara Smith and the soon-to-be legendary curator Meg Onley. Among Meg's many achievements is that she will be the next co-curator of the 2024 Whitney Biennial. And Barbara Smith has literally defined how we think about feminism and identity politics since the 1970s. We had a deep intergenerational conversation about the role identity plays in the art world, the role of criticism, and questions of cultural appropriation. I loved having this conversation, and I really hope you guys will love listening to it. Thanks so much. Barbara, thank you so much for um, agreeing to come on the podcast. And I asked my um, my professional colleague and my friend Meg Onley if she would join us in this conversation because she is organizing the upcoming Whitney Biennial. She's done really important curatorial work that I see as really connected to the intellectual tradition that you are both a part of and that you started. And I thought it might be a kind of interesting way to have this conversation to talk about, Barbara, what your work has meant and means in the visual arts world, in the art world, in the museum space. So, Barbara, for for any of our listeners who don't know who you are, I thought I would talk about just a little bit that you are a writer and an organizer. You are a member of 
the Kahambi River Collective. That statement that was written in 1977 is a kind of crucial document, almost a manifesto in some ways, um, that ushered into the to our our intellectual consciousness the idea of Black feminism. Um, you went on to co-found Kitchen Table Press, which allowed that document to exist um, then in a very important book called All the Women Are White, All the Men Are Black, But Some of Us Are Brave. Um, so these three things alone are epic, but you also wrote what for me has been a very important essay called Towards a Black Lesbian Literary Criticism. No. You're shaking me off. No. The essay is called Toward a Black Feminist Criticism. And yes. I'm putting literary yeah. in because, of course, what you do in that text is you do this sort of star turn on Toni Morrison from a kind of lesbian point of view. And, Very true. And it's a still, I find it, a staggering text to read because it makes me so aware of so many of the assumptions we have about what criticism is and what it should do. And sometimes rereading that essay, I am reminded of how profoundly valuable criticism as a form is. And I wondered if before we got into the Combahee statement and things of that nature, if you might just want to talk a little bit about that tech. One, what you see as the value of criticism, and two, why you think that essay has not been taken up as much as the Combahee River Statement has been taken up? These are wonderful questions, and I could probably fill our whole time together, or at least half of our time together, try to answer them in a really uh, thorough way. But um, if, if people... Uh, don't know the essay. I just want to say a couple of things about it, how it evolved. Um, there was a there was a lesbian feminist journal magazine based in Brooklyn uh, in the late 1970s that was called Conditions. And the editors of Conditions contacted me. I had seen the first issue, and they always numbered their issues with the uh, volume number in the title of, of the magazine. So there was Conditions 1, Conditions 2, etc. So I had seen Conditions 1. I was contacted by them because Adrian Rich had recommended that they get in touch with me and they asked me to write something about Black women's literature. And they gave me some suggestions. And my thought process was, now this is 76, 77. I, I, probably 77. I don't think they contacted me necessarily before uh, 77 began, but be that as it may, there is very little knowledge about Black women writers and other writers of color at that time. And so I decided instead of acting as if people did know about Black women's literature, that I should try to lay out kind of an analysis and a way of proceeding. Also, Black feminism at that time was in no way close to the mainstream. The main because there was so much anti-feminism, uh, particularly in, the, in a black context, not any more probably than in a white one, but because 
we are a part, all of us, of uh, the African diaspora and the African diaspora living in the United States. We are part of a besaged uh, Black community, race, racially identified community. And so to have people who are of our own marginalized and oppressed group to turn against us because we are feminists, which they thought was the equal of being a lesbian. They didn't really make a distinction, usually between the words feminist and lesbian. Being able to speak about and write about the things that I did in the essay was a real breakthrough in some ways. Not for me personally, but I was naming things and saying things that people had not said before. Mm. And 77 was a great year because uh, I wrote both Toward a Black Feminist Criticism and co-wrote the Coffee River Collective statement in the same year. Now, you asked about why people don't know Toward a Black Feminist Criticism as much as they do comedy. Toward a Black Feminist Criticism is the most widely republished essay or article that I have ever written. So mm-hmm. it is in countless anthologies, often texts that are used in college and university classrooms. So I'm not sure if mm-hmm. uh, this one being the also ran, I'm not sure that that's an accurate uh, perspective. The reason that more people would know about the Comedy River Collective is that not everybody is really that interested in literature, if you see what I'm saying. Yes. So um, the Comedy River Collective is a, a, a statement of about our social situation, about political economy, about all kinds of things that no matter what you're interested in, you would be affected perhaps by the content because it applied to you. Not everybody's reading all those books. <laughs> right. And, right. Um, and, and I'm, a, I'm a literature nerd. That's just been true from jump. But we didn't have, I'm so old, they didn't have the word nerd back in those days. Uh, so I was an egghead. <laughs> Can I ask a follow-up question thinking about towards a Black feminist criticism? Because I, too, am a literary nerd. And I think one of the things that you do within this text that's so important is establishing lesbian subtext as a reading practice. Um, And I think for me, I'm wondering um, what you see as important reading practices today. What does it mean to have a reading practice? I think it's something that's really important, at least when I'm approaching my work. Um, and literary criticism is the place that, at least for me and Helen, I'm sure you're probably the same, actually begins a lot of my thought processes uh, within curatorial practices. And you just asked, just so I'm clear, you just asked about how important it is or was to look at literature from a, a, an explicitly lesbian perspective, right? Absolutely. Yes. That had not been done, to my knowledge, ever before, at least not in any source that I could myself identify and find. and. One of the things I say about the essay is that if I was writing it today, well, of course, I wouldn't have to do what I did in that essay. I wouldn't have to try to define a feel, say that there is a Black women's literary tradition. Nobody, virtually nobody would have agreed with that at the time it was written, except for those who were the most open and most on the cutting, cutting edge of culture and feminist politics but the, and, and women's studies, which was evolving at that time, too. But now, if I wrote it, I could write about a dozen books, uh, creative works, novels, poems, plays by Black and other women of color. I wouldn't have to pull from 
uh, novel, which is one of my favorite, is still one of my favorite novels. I wouldn't have to use that as like, this is how you do it. I want to let people see how you could do that kind of criticism. <laughs> and the only book I could figure out that maybe would fit would be was uh, Sula. And just so you know, Tony Morrison did not agree with what I did in that piece, which I guess is what you uh, art people kind of like. The, con the conflict of it all. <laughs> but but the thing is that when the author of the book, later to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature, says that you were wrong, that 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 stings. It makes it makes a little bit of a difference. Mm -hmm. But of course, at the time that I first heard that, I definitely was not into going back on it, you know. But mm -hmm. like I, I, I would describe in some ways, uh, because as you can tell, I have so, uh, something of a sense of humor. I've described that essay as my crackpot essay because what were you thinking but on the other hand there's some people who told me even at the time that they never quite understood what was going on in the novel Sula until they read my essay you you ask about the value of criticism I don't necessarily see criticism as being different from any other form of thoughtful writing and analysis mm. I have a really good social science background from my undergraduate days and I often say that Having that social science, specifically sociology background, has really shaped the kind of writing that I do and influenced the kind of writing that I do. And so what I was falling back on because of being really politically active and, and politically conscious was how do you look at things socially? So um, sort of like feminist criticism, although I say that a lot of people might not read it because it's about literature, in reality, it's about fact and it's about life. You know, the, the facts of being a black woman, as I understand it. I wonder if um, to just push on this a little bit more and to ask it to you both as a question. So one of the things I'm so interested in, particularly around, you know, Meg, your work and how you might be approaching things is we're taught in art history and in the museum that we're supposed to be objective. We're supposed to sort of we're supposed to be ecumenical. We're supposed to have Catholic taste, small c. Like, we're supposed to be involved in some sort of act of representation of the field in a way that we're often asked to suppress our identity position as a maker, thinker, speaker. And so the fact that you wrote this incredible essay about criticism that very much was coming from your position, the position of your identity, this still feels underworked or underutilized to me in uh, in the visual arts field in particular. And I, I guess I'm wondering, Meg, if if you concur and Barbara, why you think maybe there's this where one group has sort of been able allowed to move ahead where another group is being held um, back within the structure. I often say that you know, my my practice is a black lesbian feminist practice. It is highly citational. But I also believe that when we're working within a museum, there are ways in which the the curator's voice, the curator's identity is often obscured. I think sometimes that goes through trends and that's the trend of maybe like the superstar curator or the ways in which curators' um, egos are front and center. But I think there is a an actual place in which we have to think about within our field 
the importance of authorship and where that authorship is coming from and who is speaking that. And I think for me, I'm really interested in that challenge. And it's one of the reasons I believe in, you know, signing your curatorial text, why it's not about obscuring the curatorial voice. And Barbara, I did a show a few years back called Color People Time. And one of the things I really wanted to do within that exhibition space was I was working within um, a museum that, you know, was showing a lot of Black artists that I was very proud of. But a lot of white curators were showing artists of color. And I would often get credit for that. And people would come up and say, oh, I love, you know, your Colleen Smith show, which was a fantastic show, but I did not work on it. And so I started to think what was a way that I could actually produce, this is really what it comes down to is text and how you can actually communicate directly to a viewer, which is often what's occurring within publications. Um, how could I communicate directly to people that even though I was not there present, you would know this was coming from a person of color, that this was coming from a black lesbian. And one of the challenges is navigating institutionality and where does the individual fit within the institution uh, where is our voice within the institution? We make up institutions. But I think there's oftentimes um, an erasure. And when it comes down to the multiplicity of identity markers, where do those erasures occur? Am I simply a Black woman within the space? Am I simply a lesbian? Am I simply just a worker within that space? And I think that's the real tension that I'm interested in within museum spaces. Wow. <laughs> so much to think about. Um I want to go back to, and so I don't forget, Helen's question about, because you're really talking about, I think, something quite similar, Meg, which is, who do you get to be in a museum context and as a curator, et cetera? And Helen's question was, why does it, does it seem, and it may only be seem, that there's been more uh, openness to looking at and integrating people's various diverse identities in literature and accepting that that's real and that is, you know, that that's legitimate than there is in art institutions. And I would say it's because art institutions generally are bastions, bastions of the upper classes and perhaps even of the ruling class. If you see what I'm saying, they are more institutionalized in some ways. Now, books to me, uh, although there is a literary canon there is a way that you can enter into the world of writing much more easily than you can enter into the world of art. Mm. And I, and having been at uh, various uh, writers' colonies or artist colonies, I grasped when I uh, met working artists while I was there, I grasped like, wow, it's really hard to be a young artist because how do you get shown? Whereas the material circumstances of creating a book or a chat book or self-publishing something or a zine is accessible. So there's this, there was this entire women in Trent movement in the 1970s into the early 80s that people who had uh, in the past not had any access to creating culture through words took the reins, you know, and were able to start presses just as I had been involved in as well, and to get the work out. What has to happen in order for a visual artist to get something to hang in a place where art is shown? I think it's a heavier lift. I think it's a heavier lift. 
And I think that, uh, I think that, uh, that role that the, uh, the museum plays, like I keep thinking about the Metropolitan Museum and I'm thinking, is there anything like that that's literary? And I'm thinking, well, would it be the prizes? Would it be the National mm-hmm. Book Award? Would it be, um, uh, Nas- National, uh, uh, Book Critics Circle Award. Those are two very prestigious, pr- prestigious awards. And also, of course, uh, the Pulitzer. But there's a difference between a prize and a building that's chock full of things <laughs> and objects. Right. So I just think it's a different, uh, level of access, um, as far as like who can make it and actually hear their work in a reasonable way. I also had that feeling about actors. How do you get to be a working actor? Somebody else has to decide. Publishing and writing is a bit more accessible than those two other art forms that uh, I just mentioned. So it's very complicated. Uh, identity politics, which is something that we wrote about in the Comedy River Collective Statement. In fact, uh, most people would agree that we initiated or invented that terminology. There's a lot of conflict. I said that we didn't have conflict and that, that as writers, we didn't have that kind of conflict. Well, this is not so literary. This is political. And of course, in politics, there's conflict. There's a lot of conflict these days about whether we're allowed to even be who we are in mm-hmm. classrooms and, uh, and what we teach and what we express. So it's, it's, they're, they're challenges for all of us. We're circling around the Combahee River collective statement. It's such an important document. It's written in 1977. As I said, it's published in all the women are white, all the men are black, but some of us are brave. It is the first place where the phrase identity politics appears. And I thought I would just read a few of the key sentences from this often quoted document. You know, you and your co-writers say our priorities sprang from the shared belief that black women are inherently valuable. And then you go on to say this may seem obvious to some, but you have to point out that, of course, no political platform had ever said such a thing so that it did need to be said and I think continues to need to be said. We need to say that out loud over and over again. And then you went on to say focusing on our own impression on our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially radical politics comes directly out of our own identity. And then you go on to talk about that identity, not as a monolithic or single thing, but rather as a deeply striated, vectored thing that includes blackness, being a woman, being a black woman, being working class, being a lesbian. Like There's this kind of constant turning, kaleidoscopic turning of the identity in the text. This document maps out intersectionality basically about 20 years before Kimberly Crenshaw names that term or that that idea of identity politics as being kaleidoscopic and multivectored. Of course, Crenshaw did that in a in a legal context to talk about the specificity of how particularly black women get get trapped and stuck in a legal system because there are these multiple vectors of their identity. But identity politics as a term gets taken up in the art world in an almost vociferous way. On the part of artists, for many artists, 
it's profoundly liberatory. They are all of a sudden allowed to leave behind minimalism, leave behind a certain kind of painting practice that demanded that their identity be neutral or non-existent, and in fact, center their own identity in the making of their work. And this type of work comes to fruition in an exhibition that's very famous in the art world, which is the 1993 Whitney Biennial. I know this is a very important exhibition for Meg, particularly as she's looking at, in, you know, making another Whitney Biennial. There is no biennial now that can be made without thinking about identity politics. It's like the 93 biennial is a watershed event in this regard. So the impact of your work in our field is is kind of immeasurable at this level. However, as liberatory as it was for artists, the phrase identity politics is quickly taken on by the right and almost used as a slur against art that did explicitly make an issue of the intersection of identity and politics. Why do you think, after all this time, the idea of identity politics is still so challenging and threatening to the powers that be? Like, what is it about this concept that could be turned, that some people find liberatory and other people are are quick to use as a kind of attack? Well, I want to answer that, but I want to go back to a couple of things. Uh, Carly Crenshaw's first work on intersectionality, which was an article that was, uh, was in her profession of law. She was writing about legal cases and how do you look at uh, discrimination, discrimination specifically against Black women. So that was 12, a 12-year 12 span, not 20. I just want to Give mm. credit <laughs> or credit uh, is due. Uh, the 1993 Whitney Biennial. I'm looking, I wrote it down. I'm wondering, did I see it? Because just so you know, the Whitney is my favorite museum in New York. So I, I used to be in New York all the time during the 1990s, but it was more the late 90s than the early 90s. So I may very well have missed it, but I just wanted to say that and to say that I'm excited about you, Meg being the curator of the next one, I just don't even know how to act. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm happy to give that. you a tour when it opens. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my I think that has to happen. I think it that will. Has to happen. Anyway, so the question is your question, uh Helen, was uh why for some people is the concept of identity politics so liberating a source of joy, a source of relief, a sort of what a sort of oh, now I know what I'm doing, or now I'm going to do something much better than what I was doing before. And for other people, it is just uh, the worst thing that could happen. That's because we live in a society that is dominated by oppression, that the people who most need and resonate with the concept of identity politics to move through their lives, including their artistic lives, those are the people who have been most generally, most generally have been multiply oppressed. And since this nation has yet to be able to grapple with its origin story of, uh, first of all, of settler colonialism, genocide, removal of indigenous people, and then the enslavement of Africans, 
since has yet to this day been able to gra- grapple with that in any fully productive way. People like us who say our identities are important, you're basically ra- uh, waving a flag in those people's faces, that is average people's faces. And I have this category of no offense met and present company not included. I have this concept of average white people. And average white people, particularly the ones who are vicious, because most white people are not vicious, but we do have a substantial right wing in this nation, as witnessed by the uh, the fool who was mm-hmm. president, you know, the last fool, you know, who was president. Um, and they, you know, they follow him as if he is uh, some kind of a religious figure. They don't care what he does, don't care what he says, he's speaking to them, and he is an archetypal racist. But be that as it may, when people assert that they think that their lives are as important as the lives of those who have run the country and own the country from its inception, certain people get very upset. People do performative things, but in reality, there's a huge amount of resistance to everyone who lives in this country uh, having the same quality of a so-called free life. Barbara, do you mind if I have a follow-up question real quick, Helen? No, not at Around all. Around identity politics. You know, I was returning to Helen like you. I was, I was, you know, in preparation for this, this conversation, I was thinking about the first time I came across the Combi River Collective, which was an undergrad um, during a feminist course that, that I had taken. And a group of my friends, uh, mostly trans people of color, um, decided that we weren't receiving the information we wanted to receive. And we felt like it was overly white uh, feminist history being taught to us. And so the Cumbia River Collective Statement was one text that we read together. And I wanted to come back to maybe the the original definition of identity politics and where that might have been misinterpreted and kind of some of my, this is a very reductive thought of identity politics, but in returning to the text, I'm thinking about Black women have the right to determine our own political agenda. Um, and where, you know, the art world is guilty of this, it has become so elastic that in a way it has absolutely erased the original definition and how depressing it is to think that, you know, do Black women still have the right to or have the right to determine our own political agenda? What does it mean for people to misinterpret that and the erasure of that? I think we live in a time when it's hard for any oppressed people to determine our own political agenda because we have a rising movement, a global uh, rising movement of fascism or near fascism. So we're, we're, it's not just black women. It's not only black women who cannot determine our political uh, agendas. It's like all of us who are behind that eight ball of uh, racial capitalism and oppression. Uh, I, I, uh, what you asked so Meg, makes me think that I should say, or to say, uh, I, I repeat again, that what we meant by identity politics was that black women had a right, just as you read, to create our own political agendas and that we were deeply committed to coalitions, mm-hmm. deeply committed to working in solidarity with other people, other people of color who are not of African heritage and white people who are committed to anti-racist struggle. So we were never separatists and we never said that the only people who deserve freedom and agency are people who are just like us. And uh, the, I think 
I don't think that at least I hate to think that uh, the uh, right wing people on the right wing and the right wing were actually reading the Comedy River Collective. <laughs> that is a really chilling thought to me. Some of them are reading it now, I guess. But I think that the uh, identity and politics, putting those two, two words together, I think more than one person would come up with that. But in the case of the right wing, they came up with it as something they wanted to attack as opposed to something mm-hmm. wa- they wanted to embrace. So as I said, that that would be a great dissertation for someone. How did the right wing get a hold of the concept of identity politics? I'm curious, Meg, now that you're facing down this biennial and you you have to confront these issues implicitly or explicitly. There's no there's no biennial that can be made without going through um, the eye of the needle of identity politics. And I wonder how you are uh, in 2023 processing this idea that came up from 1977. Yeah, it's been interesting thinking about this. So, Barbara, I'm actually in Chicago doing studio visits for the biennial. So I did one this morning and I'm off to another one after this. And it's interesting in returning to uh, the Combahee Collective Statement and really thinking about the personal and the individual and in thinking about also towards a Black feminist criticism about the individual point of view and what it means to interpret from that place. And I would say a lot of the artists that we've been talking to that Christy Isles, my co-curator, and I have had conversations with is how do artists of color, uh, trans artists, artists marked by uh, marginal identity markers, how do we not become defined by simply that and that there is a complexity to everyone's individual identity? And I think one of the real challenges I find just as a curator in general is how do you organize groups of people and allow them to have individual points of view and not become a monolith, which is inherently one of the great challenges, I think not just within our our exhibition uh, practices, but in general as people, how do we not become a monolith? Like uh, Barbara and I both might identify as Black lesbians. We've had incredibly different um, experiences. And how do you honor those experiences? You know, Helen, I think the the answer to it will be in 2024 of exactly how do you approach it. But I think for me, a lot of it is about how do you approach uh, creating within a cacophony? And I think some of that comes from my also influence of being born and raised in Los Angeles. I think so much about what it was, what it meant to come out of a multicultural uh, neighborhood um, and understanding that, you know, even myself, I've been influenced by my Japanese neighbors. I've been influenced by my Vietnamese neighbors. There's all of these kind of intersections that are happening at the same time. And how do you sort of highlight? I think that's one of the real challenges, those individual conversations. It comes up in almost every single conversation we're having with artists right now. And Maybe one word I'll also just drop out there that's so complicated is um, authenticity and what is an authentic, for me, what talking to artists, Black experience, what's an authentic queer experience, trans experience, and are all of those things having to be rooted within um, trauma? One of the things that the identity, that the foes of identity politics brought up, and it's back to our criticism problem, was that if artwork was made, literature was written, from this incredibly personal point of view, how could we discuss it in public? Would would criticism of the work 
be understood to be a criticism of that person or and or that person's identity per se. And there was a kind of hand-wringing that went on, oh, wither criticism, how will we know what's good or not? And now, that was sort of in the 80s and 90s, that was the way identity politics was seen as very dangerous to the function of criticism. Now it seems to me we have a kind of abdication. There's a kind of, um, and I sense this in my white colleagues, like, I don't know how to talk about that because I don't have any um, connection to that experience. So I'm just, I'm not going to have any judgment. I'm not, I don't feel empowered to have opinions, conversations, critical dialogue around the work of people who are quote unquote different than I am. And I guess I'm curious how you both are negotiating that, uh, Barbara, from your position of reading a book and deciding this is really good, or Meg, your position of having to go out and, and look at lots of different artists' work and decide with some set of criteria what is in and what is not in your show. I, I don't know if this is as much of a problem for me as it would be for that theoretical white critic that you're talking about or white art historian that you're talking about. I just, I know what I like. And of course, I don't have to defend myself against the work around being a racist if I don't like the work. If I don't like the work, it's not, not necessarily because I'm a, a big racist. It might be because this person doesn't know how to uh, do uh, sentence structure or whatever, <laughs> or, or tell a story or do description or whatever. So I'm not in that position, but this, you know, we live in a powder keg. We live in a powder keg that is so volatile because of our racial history and our history of white supremacy. So people who feel like they're they have to abdicate that they can't say anything about the work of someone who's different from themselves, that's what racial divisions give you. It affects the culture in a way that's not positive. I was thinking about this in relationship to literature, and I believe that uh, a Black woman or Black person sees something different in Toni Morrison's novels and in the other great novels that are good novels, very good, great, superlative, whatever. But I feel like we as Black people see something different in novels by uh, and 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 also poetry novels are my favorite so that's why i keep saying novels but we see something different in black literature than people who were never a part of the culture but i think that there's such a thing as authentic cultures within historical ex historical and social experiences i mm -hmm. think there is such a thing as african-american culture and i stand up for it. I think I'm a product of it. And there's some people who would disagree with me. Why can't we just all be American? Well, because that's not how this country was set up to begin with. And if we look at the uh, police murders of, of non-felonious Black people, it's clear that we still have a lot uh, and a long way uh, to go. So. Mm -hmm. I have maybe two responses to you, uh, Helen. And one of them is 
you know, in making it, it, it's very nerve wracking making an exhibition at this scale that is going to be so criticized. And I remember uh, the curator Henrietta Holdish told me there's something very liberating about understanding that everyone's going to hate your Whitney Biennial. <laughs> Everyone hates the Whitney Biennial. That's just that is just part of it. I don't find that liberating at all. I find it incredibly stressful. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm, I'm quite neurotic and I, I want to do a good job. So, you know, I think some of the things that, you know, Barbara, you brought up, which is intuition. I think intuition is something that we don't talk enough about and what it means to um, be guided by our gut. I, I fully believe that. I think you can heighten your intuition through reading and looking and speaking to people. And Helen knows this because I the reason we're friends is I cornered her and asked her about making an exhibition. And that's why I'm friends with most curators is because I have a, a thirst for knowledge. I think there's also a place of recognizing the importance of formalism in art history. So although we are talking about, you know, identity and subject positions, we're also understanding, as Barbara, you brought up, like, you know, sentence structure. <laughs> there are things that we can approach an art object and say, do you understand how to make a sculpture in the history of sculpture making? It's not simply because that you have a certain, you know, subject position that I think the work is good. You know, it has to be. And, and obviously the politics of taste are incredibly complicated. And I right. have to say in making this show, it has just disoriented me in so many ways of what is my taste? I understand my taste to be relatively uh, limiting. And so how do you go beyond that? How is my taste shaped by um, my class ascension, by going to graduate school, the people I'm now around? I go on for forever about this, but I wanted to say one thing very quickly about um, our white colleagues having a discomfort in talking about things that they, uh, and I'm going to root this in Black culture here very specifically, but I was in Germany two weeks ago um, opening an exhibition of the video artist Ulysses Jenkins. And one of the things I noticed, and I've been talking a lot to, to artists about this experience, was how uncomfortable a lot of the press were in talking about Ulysses' work. He's a 76-year-old Black man from Los Angeles, a video maker thinking a lot about Black representation within Hollywood. And I was like, how can they be this uncomfortable when in every Uber and Lyft and taxi I got into was Black American music? And so I, I also think about what does it mean to be a critical consumer of mm. cultures? And if you are going to critically consume cultures, our language, our fashion, the music, all of these things that are out there, then then what are you really uncomfortable with? And is that actually um, the white supremacy within you? Uh, what does it mean to also be wrong? I think one of the reasons Helen and I are friends is we've actually just talked about moments in which we've been wrong with each other and we've had misreads. And I think there's something really amazing about that type of vulnerability that you can have with a person. And so I just also want to kind of point to it, it happens as well as a biennial curator, but not being a passive consumer and really understanding the things that you're taking in and the ones that you're bringing. And I think that's, Barbara, so important to your work. Again, sort of heightening and rethinking about the individual and all of the intersections that we have within our own identities. I think that's a really good segue, actually, into the third rail of cultural life in America at this moment, which is the problem of appropriation. We are just at a very, very charged moment. I generationally came up under the the intellectual umbrella of postmodernism. Appropriation was kind of like, like a given in a geometrical proof. There was an understanding that 
you almost couldn't think without it, right? That the the culture is iterative, and part of its iterative nature is that one is always sort of bringing with one ideas, pictures, words, concepts, values from prior moments of cultural production, and that appropriation, stealing, borrowing, citation, that these functions were constitutive of intellectual and aesthetic life. This is obviously only one version of what appropriation is. And so I'm curious um, what you have to say about it. I think I'm more uh, concerned in the conversation that I uh, heard uh, that you did with, with uh, Steve Locke. Yes. Um, I think I'm more concerned about kind of the other side of it, not so much the appropriation issue as I am about, is there such a thing as existing African-American culture, African culture, Puerto Rican culture, other cultures, uh, indigenous cultures, many plurals on indigenous cultures. Is there such a thing, but particularly African-American cultures because of the fact that we don't have a nation state that we can say is a reason for why we do the things we do and believe the things that we believe. We don't have a nation state. We have a continent, the biggest continent in the entire, on the entire uh, globe. And although the slave trade was primarily Western Africa, it is a continent, you know, and because of the realities of chattel slavery in the United States, most of us have no idea exactly where our people came from. Mm. So as I said, I'm more interested in the, uh, is there such a thing as African-American culture than I am in the, with the appropriation side of it. I would say, however, that uh, to me, appropriation in the art world is uh, the counterpart of colonialism in the geopolitical world. Mm. Can you unpack that a little bit? It does happen. It's not that it never happened. Uh, but I guess it depends on what you make of it. And I know that um, you were citing, and I'm not sure that I have the person's name correctly, although I did look at uh, their film, and that was Arthur Jaffa. Is that? Yes, Arthur Jaffa. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I looked at the film, um, but uh, there was this uh, talk about the fact that all the images in his film were images he had taken from somewhere else and that they actually had the trademark Getty image on them. And then Steve talked about uh, why people thought that it was that was legitimate and that he said that the reason people did not have any problems with uh, Arthur Jaffa's work is because the person who created it was also black. And it was about it was about black people and it was by a black, by and created by a black creator. And so that's, as I said, appropriation has always happened. Uh, what we make of it, I think, depends on where we stand politically. What concerned me about the conversation was kind of, if you have, what concerned me, if I can not accurately, I'm sure, summarize what Steve Locke was saying is that culture, everybody can see everything, that U.S. culture is so heavily immersed and, and, and affected by and influenced by African-American culture, everybody should be able to look at everything. And there's no need to think that someone has a better perspective 
because they actually grew up that way. I feel like as a child who grew up in the mid-20th century in Cleveland, Ohio, when I encounter Toni Morrison, who grew up in, uh, in Ohio, pretty close to Cleveland, I feel like I have a way in mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that not everybody would have, mm-hmm. you know, because some of the things she writes about actually happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the harsh, horrible uh, cruelty of racism and sexual assault and, and, and et cetera. I'm talking about what happens when you get sick when you're a little kid growing up in the North and you have Southern relatives who are taking care of you. What do they do? Mm-hmm. When I read in, in The Bluest Eye about uh, how uh, the, the little girls who are the protagonists of uh, the story, the two sisters, well, how their mother dealt with them when they were ill, I said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. Right. And and it's not that it's extraordinary. It's that it was a mixture of like bare aspirin and syrup and soda. Pain syrup and soda, not maple syrup, syrup and soda for a cough, right? Right. Um, our grandmother used to, uh, when we got mumps, our grandmother uh, rubbed our uh, swollen and painful throats and cheeks. She rubbed them in sardine oil. I don't know why, but she did. And this is just like a little tiny sliver of African-American culture. I don't like it when people say that we don't have one or when they say that it is not important. I think it, it is it's what keeps gets me up in the morning. Mm. Thinking about there's definitely family traditions and seeing where those come up from and also the regionality of them. Um, Helen, you want me on appropriation? I just want, yeah, I want us to sort of dial it back a little bit to um, to appropriation because it's often because we live in this. This world that is structured by, as Barbara said earlier, racialized capitalism, right? Like the charge around appropriation is that those in power take from those who have less power. They take their cultural production and use it towards their own ends. Um, And then we also have a discourse around the kind of infinite shareability of things, you know, whether it's digital or handing around that Xerox or making a footnote or having a citation. And I'm curious how you negotiate the problem of appropriation for yourself um, as you're moving, as you're, you know, surrounded by artists going to studio visits every day. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I think my first thoughts around appropriation are not actually so much based within artwork these days, even though, you know, I could easily think about, you know, the Ulysses Jenkins retro that uh, Aaron Christopher and I worked on. Ulysses Jenkins was working with lots of found imagery, you know, coming out of um, television, working with his friends. There's lots of recordings. Maybe because it's so inundated within our world, I'm not thinking as much about it within within art practices. But the, the thing that came up to me was thinking back to the summer of uh, 2020 and the uprisings and the amount of people who people, institutions that posted in solidarity with Black Lives and Black Lives Matter. Uh, Lots of museums did that. And the um, flat-footedness and lack of understanding of what their consumption and then appropriation of Black culture is. 
um, without an actual politic behind it. And so what happens when you make gestures, empty gestures that in the end, you know, are then followed by we're seeing, you know, on TikTok and we're seeing on Instagram, plenty of people would say they're they're in solidarity with black lives and then they would easily be appropriating black culture and reperforming that on the Internet without having a real understanding of, well, what is owed to the artists you're sampling from? What is owed to the community you're taking from? How are you profiting even being in proximity to these ideas? I mean, it's interesting to think about social media in that type of aspect of how it just proliferates and the inescapability of it. I think about that just even when I come in and I, you know, I'm scrolling and you're constantly confronted by these types of performances um, that have no rooted or groundness uh, within, you know, Black community. I think there's there's a great um, article in the New York Times. Uh, I think it's an op-ed from Nicki Minaj critiquing Miley Cyrus at the time of saying, you know, what does it really mean for you to be like down with us? And if you're going to take this culture, really do something about it and don't just take from it. And so not to say I'm not interested in appropriation within within contemporary art. I think it's something I don't rack so much. Maybe I don't think about it as tracking within. I think for me, I'm so interested in the ready-made and recontextualization. And what mm-hmm. does it mean to suddenly re-see a work of, of art or an object or a space through another lens or understanding the political implications? And I'm thinking, of course, of someone like Cameron Rollins' work. I'm thinking of Carolyn Lazard's work. Um, Park MacArthur's work, you know, there are lots of artists who are approaching that in in, in just, it's not just influential ways, it, it allows me to rethink what the space of the institution is and how do we sort of highlight aspects of that. So one thing, Barbara, I, I've been really interested in and I, I kind of thought about in my Color People Time show was um, through an artist's work, how do we think about Black futurity, um, not as spectacular, but within a mundane space? And how do we understand that, you know, you are thinking about what you're going to do tonight. And that is also Black futurity. And so I tried finding an example. I was like, well, what is a historical example that we can really think about? And I started thinking about Henrietta Lacks and her immortal cell line and how, you know, her family did not have access, you know, in any financial repercussions of her cell line being used, which is now used for cloning. Um, it's been used in some uh, vaccines for uh, COVID, I believe. Um, you know, it was used for smallpox vaccine. I mean, it, a Black woman's body, her actual material has produced a futurity for so many people and in vitro fertilization. And so in the show, I started thinking about like, well, what's the representation of that? And you can actually online buy HeLa cells. You can order them and have them delivered to your house. And I, I, I was not interested in that as a sculptural object. And so I started looking and what I found was, this is kind of bringing it back to to Steve Locke's conversation about AJ and, and getting images. Um, I found images of, of the moment in which HeLa cells are dividing. And that is what makes them immortal, That what makes them unique. And it was sold by Getty Images. And so we bought we bought it for $500 and we showed the stock image within there. And it made me just think about all of the ways in which Henrietta Lacks and her body is being reappropriated over Mm. and over and over again and the ways in which her family is not profiting in the way that Big Pharma has. And so coming back and thinking about, you know, 
Black women's agendas, political agendas, coming back and thinking about, you know, the complications of objectivity, which is something I'm very interested in. I always say to Helen, like, if, you know, we were once considered you and I, Barbara, objects, what does it mean for me to arrange objects in space? There, There is something like, to me, that will forever propel my my practice as a curator. And I just want to bring up those HeLa cells because this isn't, you know, this is not directly appropriation. This is theft, you know, this is theft. And yet at the exact same time, there is something just absolutely horrifying and banal about a Black woman's body being used in this type of way that, um, I don't know, just feels directly connected and maybe something I just want to bring up in relationship to the things that we're talking about. I think that's a wonderful and brilliant example. And of course, an incredibly tragic one too. Um, I wanted to go back to uh, who gets to look at something or read something and say something about it. And mm. what I was thinking before we started our conversation earlier today, I was thinking, well, there are white critics who write about Black literature who I would read and who I'm interested in their work. And what's the difference between those people, th those critics that I would look forward to uh, reading and those who I would wonder about? And the difference is, did they do their homework? And one of the ways that people can find out more about our culture is actually to study, you know, study the subject matter. So I think that the academic who gets a PhD in African-American studies, who is not a person of African heritage, they've done some work. They have actually done some work. Doesn't mean that they have perfect, uh, perfect takes on everything that they look at or that they think about, but at least they did some, did some homework and you get a PhD in any field, you have to do a lot of homework. And then there's also the homework that you do in your day-to-day -day life. Like, do you only see people who are different from yourself when you visit the museum or go to the bookstore? Do you run by the shelf where there are writers of color or do you pick up the book by the hottest person of color that you just read about? So you can say that you have the book or own the book. What do you do in your everyday life? You talk to people and make an effort to be with people who can say a lot to you about what something means and about the culture because they're in it themselves. We live in a really segregated society. And I love hearing that, uh, Helen, that you and Meg have processed things and go back to things that were off so that you can continue to have a genuine and uh, wonderful friendship. That's great. Very few people will do that because they're very, very afraid of being called out. They're afraid of being wrong. And those are the good ones. The good ones who don't want to make a mistake. <laughs> they're the good ones. And then there's a whole big swath of them who could give a flying. You know, they don't care. They really don't care. But in order to be able to cross borders using uh, Gloria Angelou's term, um, do, and other people's uh, term, who, terms who have had that experience of the poorest uh, border that we have in this nation in uh, the Southwest. To be able to cross borders, you have to stretch and you have to put yourself in a situation where you understand more than what you learned at home or what you learned, you know, in some very, uh, very narrow academic uh, setting. And most people are afraid to take that risk. So that's what I would say. If you want to be able to say something that makes some sense about 
whatever art form or even something that's not an art form, say like a social problem <laughs> that's affecting people in your very own neighborhood or city or community, you have to be able to do your homework and you also have to be willing to be vulnerable and to say, I don't know. There are certain white people in the nation um, who are not the majority, I would say, but they have made a commitment to being able to do that stretching. And they do it in many, many different ways. Uh, they find opportunities to be with people who are different from themselves. And they don't assume that those people are going to be hurtful to them, hostile to them, mean to them, or dangerous. Um, and they also are willing to make mistakes. I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation today because I hope that some people who are going to be able to share this conversation will say, huh, I never thought about that. Maybe the next time I pop into that bodega, I'm thinking New York City, of course, maybe the next time I go there, maybe I'll start a conversation with a guy who I see every single day behind the counter and just ask him something basic, you know, like, do you have kids for in school? You know, my kids are driving me nuts. You know, there's so many things that people have in common that they weren't afraid to communicate on that level. Hmm. I have the unenviable task of rounding this conversation up, but I want to thank you both very much. And I do think that I've loved the intergenerational take here. And I also just feel very moved by the conversation about Henrietta Lacks. I feel like um, this is exactly the kind of conversation that Barbara, your work has made possible that we can have like that. There it is. Like what is a, um, a black lesbian millennial perspective. And there it is. It includes uh, the extraordinary legacy of Henrietta Lacks from which I know I have benefited. Um, and it gives an opportunity to be grateful for it, uh, to acknowledge what was wrong about how it, went down, but really more, it gives me the opportunity to be grateful for you, Barbara Smith, and your work, and for Meg, for the work you've done and the work yet to come. I just want to thank you both so much for participating today. And thank you. Thank you both. It really is an honor. And thank you so much, Barbara. It's really fantastic oh. to be in conversation with you. Same here. And I love that the two of you have got my uh, brain shells firing. That's really wonderful. And Meg, I heard you say that I, that you were going to show me around the biennial. I'm uh, very happy I don't to want, do that. That's bookmarked. That is bookmarked. Okay. <laughs> March 2024. Thank certainly. Thank you, Helen, especially for inviting me. Thank you. All. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.